4: Hello and welcome. I'm your host Quinn Hoffman, and you're listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. Tonight on the show, in honor of the new year, we'll be highlighting all the best interviews and features we've had in this past year. We'll hear from old hosts like Abby Newton and Stephen Rich, as well as reporters Alsha Clausen and Sarah Terico. Start the show. We'll hear a feature from Abby Newton, a previous host of the show.
5: We have four seasons in Michigan. Winter being the most notorious. It is bitterly cold. There is snow everywhere, and the windshield often keeps us below freezing temperatures. But some cyclists at Michigan State don't seem to let that bother them.
6: Well, there's there's a surprising number of cyclists that do continue to ride right through the winter, and we. We've been supporting them this winter, a number of them. That
5: was Tim Potter. He helped start the MSU Bike Center in 2006 and has managed it ever since. He's just one of the people that continue to bike during the winter in Michigan. Every day, he parks his car in South Campus and rides to the bike shop, located on the north end of Farm Lane.
6: I personally park my car in South Campus where it's free to park. So. I- it forces me to ride my bike that mile or so, um, so I get a little taste of it every day, just to see kind of what our customers are encountering. And so, I, it certainly has more uh, challenges than riding in nice weather. But you know, if you have the the fighting spirit or the uh, you know just the the willingness to try different things, and um, it's certainly not out of the question to keep riding through the winter, even on the worst days. MSU
5: junior Ryan Erksleben also accepts the challenge.
6: If you are really passionate about cycling,
7: you don't mind doing it in the winter. It's just, especially when you're from Michigan, uh, you don't really mind the snow. You just kind of deal with it mm-hmm. and it really doesn't change things as far as getting around. Obviously your commute may take a little bit longer. but. Other than that, I really don't mind it.
5: Ryan says he bikes during the winter for its convenience and cost efficiency.
7: It saves money on gas. Uh, It's a lot more convenient. Uh, You don't have to pay for parking. Uh, And you can get right outside your class without having to obviously park somewhere.
5: And Ryan also trains during the winter.
7: Well, aside from commuting, I train during the winter as well. It beats training on the actual trainer, which you just set your rear wheel up and you can train inside, so it's a stationary thing and that gets extremely boring.
5: But there are limits for this cycling enthusiast.
7: I think the coldest I've ever trained in is like 9 degrees, roughly. Uh, it was pretty cold. I probably won't do that again.
5: To combat these cold temperatures, Ryan recommends layers. Many layers.
7: Multiple gloves. Um, they make a lot of great gear out there for the winter. Uh, that's the biggest thing. Uh, so you don't have to be cold when you're out there on the bike. Uh, it just
6: depends on if you have the right stuff.
5: And Tim agrees.
6: On um, that being said, it's... It's you know if you've got the right equipment and the right clothing uh, or the right packaging as a good packaging professor likes to say, it's just a matter of the correct packaging, um, you know you can be you can do just fine sure. riding through pretty much anything throughout the winter
5: and when I was talking to Tim, he actually said biking is warmer than walking.
6: You actually stay a lot warmer while you're riding, you generate quite a lot of heat then and a lot of people don't realize that, and so I like to tell people I, i'd rather be. A little bit colder for a shorter amount of time, like I can get across campus in like five, ten minutes maximum on the snowiest days. Uh, whereas sitting, waiting for a bus, you could wait 15 minutes and you're not moving and you're not generating any heat, so you're getting cold and colder and colder.
5: But what about the slippery sidewalks and the snow drifts?
6: We're right here on the river trail and we do have a number of people that have come in having just crashed, you know, when, it, when the winter first, we started getting a lot of The first, some of the first snows of the season, there were quite a few people that had just come in having crashed.
5: Tim has experienced some of these dangers.
6: I was riding home about five years ago, and this was in, right around Thanksgiving, and it was like the first freezing temperatures, and it was black ice, and I was just riding on Farm Lane, and just going a straight line, and up until that point, I thought I would only really crash if I was trying to turn, and my front wheel would slide out. Well, I was going in a straight line, and I just crashed right on farm lane after a cat-a-bus had just passed me.
5: Acting service manager Levi Dissinger says he deals with all the accidents and repairs winter brings. He gave me a couple recommendations for how to prepare for winter biking.
8: A lot of uh, busted wheels and frozen chains, a lot of stuff that sticky brakes that could be prevented with a lot of just basic oil. Uh, A lot of moisture and the salt. Salt's really hard on them. Uh, Even just spraying them off from time to time can help preventative maintenance.
5: Now Tim says the type of bike one uses changes what you feel while biking in the snow and the slush. Some use skinny wheeled bikes.
6: And so some conditions, you know, the skinnier wheeled bikes can, as a lot of people say, it'll it'll cut through the really deep slushy stuff and get contact with the ground that way.
5: While others prefer the fat tires.
6: Personally ride a mountain bike, an older mountain bike with fatter tires with the uh, uh, metal studs I have on the tires so that it it can uh, for me, I just prefer to ride a fatter tired bike and uh, but so there's two different thoughts on that so
5: either way, Tim says fenders are the most important
6: um, fenders, I think are really kind of a must for winter riding just to keep all the junk off you like as it warms up now I mean we're getting into really sloppy conditions mm-hmm. and so keeping all the, the mud and the spray and the salt off not only you but also off the bike, it helps keep the bike a little mm-hmm. cleaner as well.
5: Whether you are a first time cyclist or a seasoned veteran, Tim says biking in the winter just requires some courage and resilience.
6: You have to have a certain amount of grit or interest in just doing something new maybe
5: but if you aren't ready for winter biking quite yet, you can always attempt Indoor Bike Polo. MSU Bike Center puts it on on Fridays at IM West. Now for more information about the Bike Center, its winter specials, or cycling in general, you can check out bikes.msu.edu. For Impact News, I am Abby Newton.
4: Next up, we go to probably the most unique feature of 2014. Impact reporter Alsha Clausen breaks down squirrels at MSU.
9: We see them everywhere, walking to class, outside our dorm windows, or even waiting for the bus. They have those bushy tails, and their large brown eyes give squirrels the ultimate awe factor. Here at MSU, the squirrels are not shy. They stare as you walk by, tilting their heads as they examine your hands and search for food. Human biology student Bilal Slaiman recounts,
1: I had like one run across my foot before.
9: In fact, he often interacts with the squirrels he sees skipping around campus.
1: I usually just come out here and like feed them like after I come out of the calf or something. They seem like a lot more friendly and like it's kind of cool that you can get so close to like the wildlife.
9: Unfortunately, Jordan Burroughs, wildlife outreach specialist, does not think this is a good idea. She says wildlife can lose their fear of humans, leading to bold and aggressive behavior.
10: So if you and some of your friends are feeding the squirrels and they get used to that, and then another group of people come around to the same area and are not feeding the squirrels, they could potentially get more bold and um, approach humans more closely than they should in hopes of getting some food.
9: Bilal is not the only one who has interacted with the squirrels of MSU. Many students adore them. There is even a Facebook fan page called MSU Squirrels Are Cool. Both students and alumni broadcast their love and enthusiasm for the creatures as they post comments such as, I miss these friendly squirrels, and this is too cute. Some may argue that these squirrels act more like pets than rodents, but should these furry animals be domesticated? MSU Earth Science and Journalism student Carmen Scruggs actually came close to doing just that.
11: I first started this whole, like, training squirrel uh, freshman year. In Wonders, I lived on the first floor, so I noticed a squirrel that lived in the tree across from my window.
9: And like your typical courtship, it started kind of slow.
11: I would just throw out, like, some almonds or some nuts, and he would, like, come over and get them. And then over the process of a year, he would slowly get closer and closer, and then I got him to hop up on my ledge. And so... Sophomore year, I lived in the exact same room because I reserved it as a single. And then he came back.
9: And their relationship escalated.
11: At that point, uh, I had taken the screen off my window every time he came. And he actually knew his name. (laughs) I named him Russell, so I opened up the window and he'd come and I'd feed him. And so toward the end of the year, my sophomore year, I actually was able to have him come into my room and feed him out of my hand.
9: However, Carmen still does not think domesticating squirrels is a good idea. Squirrels are very,
11: you know, for lack of a better word, squirrely. So even though I had trained Russell to come into my room and he had been accustomed to me and was calm, at least for a squirrel, he was still, like, you know, jittery and shaky, and if, like, somebody else were to come into my room, he would totally run out. I think it would kind of be difficult to tame squirrel, so I don't think it's a good idea because they're just super hyper.
9: Burrow supports this view.
10: They're wild animals. I'm sure they have quite sharp claws and sharp teeth and can definitely be unpredictable. So I would discourage anyone from having a squirrel or any other wild animal as a pet.
9: Burrow says that domesticating squirrels is actually illegal because they are game animals and are protected under a permit issued by the Department of Natural Resources.
10: However, these permits are not issued to allow someone to take a wild animal from the wild and keep it as a pet.
9: Although we cannot cuddle with the squirrels legally, or ever, they are important to the environment.
10: They um, inadvertently help plant forests and other trees when they bury those um, those nuts and then um, they turn into seedlings the following spring. So I think focusing on the habitat and what are the habitat needs of the squirrels and then seeing what, or other wildlife in general, and seeing what you can do to enhance that habitat.
9: We can continue to observe their cuteness from afar and keep them around MSU by making sure they have their fresh fruits and seeds to feed on, protecting their shelters, and giving them their space. For Impact News, I'm Alsha Clausen.
4: For our next piece, we go to an interview Abby Newton did for the show with Professor Russells Johnson about his research with smartphones.
5: I'm Abby Newton, and you are listening to Exposure on Impact 89FM. An embassy professor found that smartphone usage at night can actually decrease energy levels the next day. Russells Johnson is a professor in the Department of Management, and he conducted this research. We had him in the studio to chat about his findings.
12: My colleagues and I, we... have come across a lot of anecdotal evidence about people complaining about using their smartphones at night, how that uh, causes them to be more fatigued and mm-hmm. eats into uh, uh, kind of their sleep time. Um, but no one had really studied this uh, scientifically, so we kind of took that upon ourselves to see whether this was in fact the, the case. So what we did was, um, across two studies, uh, in the first one, we tracked managers over 10 consecutive work days and surveyed them multiple times a day, where we uh, captured how long they used their smartphones for work at night after 9 p.m. Um, and 9 p.m. was chosen because most people go to sleep within one to two hours of mm-hmm. 11 p.m. So that was kind of the kind of the beginning of that that period of time. Um, we also tracked uh, how long they slept and then their mental fatigue uh, the next morning and how engaged they were at work uh, at the end of the workday. Um, what we found was uh, smartphones uh, ate into people's sleep time, and uh, use, the use of smartphones for work at night caused them to be more uh, fatigued the next morning. And mm-hmm. kind of ironically, even though they're using it for work that night, which you think would kind of prepare them for, uh, for whatever they're, they're going to face the next day, it actually left them uh, uh, less engaged at work the following day.
5: And is it more how your mind engages with your phone, and then you know, maybe you're distracted in that way, or is it the physical time you're spending on your phone before you go to
12: sleep? So we suspect there's two kind of mechanisms that uh, account for the, these detrimental effects of smartphone use for work at night. Uh, one is a, a more of a physiological effect. There's a lot of studies that show that being exposed to, to light, especially around bedtime, um, impedes sleep, because it actually interferes with the production of melatonin, which is a, a sleep-promoting hormone. Um, And when that happens, it's harder to fall asleep and and stay asleep. Um, There's also a psychological uh, mechanism as well. um, It's been found that it's actually pretty important to be able to disengage or get a respite from work uh, in the evenings. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, that's kind of counterintuitive. You think people that are constantly on thinking about work that would prepare them. But um, it's, in fact, really important for recovery purposes to get that mental break. And if people are using their smartphone at night, obviously that's not happening.
5: In what age level were you testing?
12: Um, so in the first study, it was kind of mid to level, uh, mid to high level managers. Tons. So these folks, 40, okay. 50, um, many of them are CEOs or mm-hmm. COOs. Um, in the second study, we looked at uh, non-managerial employees. So uh, more in in the 30s, 40s. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but this wasn't a, a college age population.
5: And it just makes me curious about, you know, the future to come with this smartphone use when you have a generation born into smartphone use and how... That will impact them. So that's very interesting, excuse me, to do the study now and then see kinda how it progresses.
12: Compare it to, yeah, a right. generation that's more more into it. Mm-hmm. Um, what what I'd suspect for that is obviously the physiological effects, it doesn't matter if you're old, young, or or when you were born, mm-hmm. that the the blue light from the smartphone is gonna have that negative effect on um, on hormones. Uh uh, production for sleep. Um, in terms of uh, age, though, I, th- I think one thing we didn't do—we looked specifically at use of smartphone for work, uh, mm. whereas using it for social activity. So if I if I was facebooking or gaming on it, that actually allows me to get that that respite or break from work. Huh. So that that may even offset the the negative physiological effects. That's actually something that we're going to follow up on in a, a, a next study.
5: That's very interesting. And uh, were you surprised by any of the results?
12: Um, I. Th- Probably the most surprising was um, in our second study, we looked at smartphone use uh, with non-managerial employees, but we also looked at the use of televisions, tablets, and uh, laptops, computers, um, to see, is are smartphones unique? Do they have kind of an effect above and beyond these other things, or are they just another example of uh, technology? And actually, what we found, although all of those things, uh, televisions, laptops, tablets, and smartphones aid into sleep time, um, it was really smartphones that had the strongest effect on mental fatigue the next morning, and they had the only effect on disengagement the following day, um, which is something that uh, was surprising for Mm. us.
5: And how did you measure? Excuse me. How did you measure disengagement?
12: Oh, um, uh, a, a typical self-report survey. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, um, the, the surveys went out about I believe it was five p.m. or six p.m. And, and just asked how how how, uh, how were you able to concentrate at work? How engaged were you at work? Um, things of that nature.
5: And I was reading and I found that 40% of people get en- do get enough sleep. So you've got 60% of people who aren't getting enough sleep. Do you think a lot of that is contributed to that smartphone use?
12: So based on some of the sleep polls that mm-hmm. we encountered, and, and this is one reason why we conducted this study, um, a, a, a majority of people say they, they don't get enough sleep. And actually quite a few of those folks that report not getting sleep, Uh, specifically indicated uh, the smartphone is the culprit.
5: Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add? I think I kind of got all I was thinking, but if there's anything else, go ahead.
12: Um... Uh, uh, maybe one other surprising finding, sure. um, we looked at kind of the average use that people are using these mm. different technologies at night. Um, and so I mentioned smartphones had the biggest effect on people's fatigue and uh, depletion uh, engagement the next day at work, um, despite the fact that they seem to use them the, the least on average. Smartphones were used between maybe five and ten minutes. Mm. Um, of course, there's variance. So some excessive phone use would be uh, in the 20 minute range, uh, whereas television use was upwards of 40, 45 minutes, and, and even computers were in the 20 minute range. So even though it seems that they're being used more, it's smartphones that are having the bigger impact.
5: In five minutes, that seems so little, you know, yeah, and I'd- meaningless. Wow. Uh, for you, do you find yourself, you know, checking your phone right before you go to bed or now are you self-conscious?
12: <laughs> so, so I am guilty of that and I, I used to sleep with it on, on the bed side. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to take some of my advice um, in that uh, a, a lot of people use their phone uh, for like a sleep alarm and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm guilty of that too. But what I do is I plug my phone in away from the bed where it's out of, uh, where it's out of reach and so it's not going to be that, that distraction there mm-hmm. and flip it over so that screen isn't, uh, <laughs> isn't bothering me.
5: It's very difficult to take your own advice, isn't it? (laughs) Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Johnson. We really appreciate your time. Yeah,
2: thank you.
4: (laughs) Next up on the show is another feature from a previous host. Stephen Rich discusses distilling in Michigan.
2: The start of my story brought me to a neighborhood in Okemos. I was there for an informational session for a brewery and distillery startup. I parked my car and walked towards a two-story brick building. I was surprised to see a couple kids by the door, but they took my jacket, made me leave my shoes, and directed me upstairs. The small room was packed with people. There was a big sofa along the back wall, food and drinks on a long card table, and Cornelius kegs cluttered in a corner with printed signs above each one. Heck yes, Heffenweisen, Kinky Brown, King Jeremy Imperial Stout. It was Sleepwalker Brewery and Distillery.
13: The Japanese translation for a sleepwalker, the literal translation, it's four characters or so. It's um, dream, play, person. And so we love that. I mean, a person who's, you know, dreaming and playing. And so that became became our slogan. So dream play is sleepwalker.
2: That was Matt Jason, one of the co-founders of the business. Matt and his business partner, Jeremy Sprague, had been homebrewing for years before branching out into micro-distilling and developing what has become sleepwalker.
7: So
14: I've been brewing pretty hardcore at home for about five, a little over five years now. Um, And... Matt has been brewing for, I think, over 23 years at home, 24 years?
13: Um, it'll, be, it'll be 20
14: next year. Oh, okay. 75 years or something <laughs> like that? <laughs> so um, about five years ago, Matt uh, had me come meet him for drinks to talk about microdistilling.
2: Now microdistilling it centers around developing unique and high-quality liquors in small quantities. While microbrewing is quite popular in the state, Matt and Jason are one of a few microdistillery businesses in Michigan. With
13: spirits, there are some economies of scale that are you have to take into consideration. I mean, you can make really good whiskey in a huge scale, and with beer, we don't tend to see that as much. So there, there isn't as huge, as big of an impetus. I don't think to do smaller um, company or um, um, smaller outputs of of whiskey but but you can make a really unique distinctive product that the big companies won't make so
2: with a focus on quality and local products they began to cement themselves in the mid-michigan community in the past they partnered with the Allen Neighborhood Center to serve beer fundraisers
13: um, and obviously as home brewers you know we can't charge anything for it so we're just bringing serving small samples and you know we so we can kind of gave this cool spin to their event and they gave us some exposure and we are currently now working on leasing a space from them to produce
2: beer this summer and to, to serve, um, to fill growlers to go. They've also partnered with Craft & Mason Coffee Roasters and Midtown Brewing Company actually did a collaboration brew with Sleepwalker.
13: So you know there are people who want to do some fun
2: unique things and that's
13: what we're all about.
2: But microdistillery work is challenging and expensive. It's difficult to take those first steps in the industry, but Michigan State University may have the answer the MSU Artisan Distilling Program has been working to develop and educate individuals pursuing distilling.
3: So like 17 years ago the law changed to make it easier to do uh, small-scale distilling and as a chemical engineer also with a lot of training in food science uh, I thought you know that might be a good time for MSU to see if they want to get involved in this and uh, so we had some meetings and stuff and uh, and, and with the industry and everything and the general uh, um, the, the you know everybody agreed that'd it be a good thing for MSU to have a program to support this industry.
2: And Dr. Chris Berglund is the professor who founded the educational distilling program and its commercial partner, Red Cedar Distilling. And years later, the distilling program remains a unique resource here at MSU.
3: This is the only distilling program in the United States. It's that. This is it. <laughs> and uh, uh, and so uh, so we have a, a really. Uh, good position to train people. People come from all over the United States and Canada and even Mexico to take workshops we have and, and so uh, we're not just the only one in the US, we're kind of the North American uh, center for this sort of thing and, and that's we're really th- that's really good because I think that you always even if there's only one you want to be the best, right? So. <laughs>
2: have, I mean, Berglin said that the focus back. remains on giving students tools to learn about the industry.
3: Um, Everybody that works here right now is an MSU student, and one, either a graduate student or undergraduate, and even people tending bar you know, at, uh, in the tasting room are MSU, uh, are MSU students. Um, and so, uh, so we, we really try to keep the, uh, the MSU stuff as a really uh, kind of in the front.
2: From a cohesive relationship with the big-name companies to the growth of the spear industry as a whole, Berglund told me that the future of craft distilling was looking bright.
3: Whiskey alone is growing between, you know, 4 and 8% per year. And so it's really a big growth market. And uh, so there's plenty of room for a lot of people, and I think it's just people are, are, are liking, they like the sort of the bi-local spirits, wine, beer. The, the local stuff is really popular, uh, and then the big brand stuff still popular too.
2: And community members like Alfonso Salas look forward to seeing how this growth in the distilling market can bring growth to the community.
3: Well, I'm excited first and foremost is that uh, th- this company, our, our sleepwalker, is, is being located here in Lansing. I think it's important that if you, if you live in the community and you believe in Lansing, you believe in the community, you see that it's growth, then why not invest in it?
2: And so I took a seat at the bar in the Red Cedar Tasting Room. And I ordered the bartender's favorite, because if there's one place where you trust their judgment, it's at the distillery. Cheers. For Impact News, I'm Stephen Rich.
4: Another top feature this year was done by Impact reporter Sarah Tarico as she analyzed the effects of multitasking.
0: I do it. Netflix on
14: I didn't plan on telling them so much so soon iTunes I playing no way roommate
0: gabbing a huge exam. I don't even know if I think homework that. doing.
14: doing
0: and I see a lot of other students doing it too sitting in the caf with headphones on reading even in the library I check my phone every other paragraph or so in my textbook and we're not all just goofing off. Sometimes I'm emailing a professor or listening to a podcast that was assigned. Either we're the most efficient generation yet, with the world literally at our fingertips, able to get more done faster, or we are a sad group of overstimulated, socially awkward, insomniac freaks. I'm taking a class this semester called Voluntary Simplicity. We get tea breaks and have homework assignments like, Give a Stranger a Genuine Compliment. I really like your hair. And Mean It. And... Choose one product that you use every day, find out how it's made, and then call the company and tell them that you're never going to buy it again. It's taught by Lori Thorpe and Robbie Richardson. I got a hold of Robbie to see what he had to say about multitasking, and just to give you some insight, Robbie insists that he doesn't teach this class. We take turns leading discussion, and he asks just as many questions as the rest of us. He's really into eye contact, and his spear animal is a turtle. I expected Robbie to give me some tips on how to escape the constant stimulation, but he surprised me.
15: Um, I think when when we use these technologies intentionally and mindfully in ways that benefit us, they are incredibly useful and open up a world of information to us.
0: And what about when we're not being mindful? When we're zoning out on Facebook and Candy Crusher? Or better yet, what about the 20-credit student who relies on Angel, D2L, LinkedIn, to stay afloat? Robbie says it's as simple as minimizing.
15: Check your email uh, in the morning and use it for an hour and get as much done as you can and then turn it off and engage with the other kinds of work that you have to do um, so that the bell is not dinging to remind you that you got another message, uh, that kind of thing.
0: So, silence your phone when you're not using it. Turn off alarms that you don't need. As a professor, he says he knows it can be hard. He stressed that he wasn't anti-technology. He thinks computers, cell phones, and other devices have made the learning environment more accessible. Um,
15: But we also need to step away from them and use other tools that are important, like tools of reflection, like... um, Uh, developing our writing skills, our communication skills.
0: I thought I would take this question outside the classroom and ask other students what they had to say about the whole thing. Um, That's a hard question. I went to Brody Calf and bugged the people who looked the busiest. I found sophomores Anna Myeli and Hannah Rhodes. The girls said they're really not that distracted while doing homework.
7: For me, it depends on the subject. So if it's really a lot of information, I don't have anything around, you know, sound at all. But if I'm just reviewing something, I'll listen to music, like soft music. Compared
0: to our parents' generation, the two also agreed that they'd rather be students today. Here's Hannah. I
11: think we'd get a lot more done, but it's a lot easier to get stressed out because there's so much going on around you. Okay.
0: Wanting to know more about the inner workings of the mind and how we process information, I turned to Linda Jackson, an MSU psychology professor. She was feeling under the weather, so ironically, we exchanged emails instead of meeting face-to-face. She says that the research on multitasking has produced mixed results. There are some tasks that can be done simultaneously. Yes, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. But when we are doing things that require us to think, we can be impaired by multitasking. So, you don't actually perform both tasks at the same time. Rather, you have to do it in a sequence. First one, then interrupt it to do the second one, then interrupt it to do the third, and so on. The result? A decrease in performance on both tasks. But my big question as a college kid is, what does this mean for our future? Jackson stressed that the careers of the future will require strong problem-solving skills. Her advice? Use the tools you are given. Use your computers, network online, but recognize that it is not about passing a test. It is about understanding concepts and the reasoning that is behind the correct answer. So, again, are we that efficient generation, able to get more done faster, or are we the overstimulated insomniac freaks? I think it comes back to intention. We must become mindful of how we use our resources and must learn to take advantage of the power that they give us. So I could escape the multitasking by throwing my computer into the Red Cedar River, or my iPod, or my roommate. But I don't want to, because the truth is is that we rely on these things to get our work done, to be productive citizens and students, to be alive in the 21st century. But I will take time to appreciate the value of devoting my attention to those things, but not all at once. With Impact News, I'm Sarah Tirico.
4: This next piece is an interview Stephen did for the show this past fall. He sits down with Scott Westerman, an old college radio alumni.
14: Uh, My name is Scott Westerman. I came to Michigan State University in 1973, and I came specifically because of student radio. Um, I always wanted to be a guy who owned radio stations. I started working in radio when I was age 14 in Ann Arbor while I was growing up riding my bicycle there before I even had a driver's license before school and after. And so MSU was the place to go. Back then, we had five student radio stations, wow. uh, four in the dorms and then uh, WMSN, which was in the basement of student services. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was lucky enough to be uh, housed in Wonders Hall, and we had a radio station in the basement there, WEAK. Mm-hmm. They were all, back in the day, uh, AM radio stations, and our transmitters were connected to the wiring system so that uh students basically inside the dorms could pick us up it was a horrible sound there was a ton of hum it was just really really bad but we had just like you guys do an amazingly supportive uh group of students that uh were involved we had you know probably 150 200 people across all the stations that were working on campus radio and um it was a great launching pad for my career. One of the mm-hmm. things I discovered was that I did not want to do radio for a living. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was, a, after graduation, uh, I kind of floated into the cable TV industry. That was the majority of my career with a five-year kind of entrepreneurial hiatus in the middle. And, um, um, along the way, every good thing that seemed to happen to me in my career had a Spartan connection. Yeah. Uh, so when, uh, the opportunity uh, came to, uh, become the head servant at the MSU Alumni Association, I jumped at it, and it's turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me.
2: <laughs> well, great to hear. And I actually never knew that, there, uh, that MSU Radio started as all the different dorm radios. I heard about this earlier this year, and I was just blown away that it was kind of like within its own building each. So there's only five total stations, so there's five buildings essentially that had a station?
14: Well, the way that it worked was uh, back in 1957, right after Brody was built, uh, a bunch of kids came up with the idea of student radio mm-hmm. on what they call carrier current broadcasting uh, with an AM transmitter. And they cre- they built, it was a homebrew transmitter they called Cheyenne Brody. <laughs> and for 10 years, uh, they transmitted out of the basement of Brody Hall. Uh, they originally homebrew equipment. Along the way, they got enough funding that they were able to buy a Gates yard, which was the state of the art, kind of like your digital, uh, quote on your digital oh. gear this year. And... Um, as the uh, interest in radio grew, the signal kind of spread further across mm. the campus. And um, by the time I got here, uh, there were uh, you know five stations. Uh, there was was a signal in every dorm. So mm. if you lived in the Brody Complex, you got WBRS. If you lived in uh, uh, Wonders and Wilson, you got WEAK. If you were in Shaw, you got WKME. If you're in McDonald and Holmes, you got WMCD. And everything else got WMSN. Mm. And there was a lot of time during the the day when we would actually. Pot up the network and um, take their programs. They had a, a, something called ellipsis, which was the equivalent of exposure back in the day. Oh. And that was something that, um, you know, we all, all the stations carried during, during uh, prime time, if mm. you will.
2: So it doesn't sound like there was much competition. It was kind of everyone
14: working together within their own parts of campus as kind of like a network. Right. Of- That's what it was. It was the Michigan State Network. That's what WMSN stood for. Mm. Um, very collaborative. And all of us who worked in the dorm stations eventually. Uh, did at least one shift at WMSN? That was the place that had the best gear, the largest record library, and the most resources. Um, so,
2: besides being a DJ, what sort of did you do anything else while you were at the student radio stations? Were you guys set up a lot like us, where we have directors kind of leading different departments? Um, what was the setup like when you were? There? It was
14: very similar to what you have now. Um, every station had its general manager, student general manager. They were paid. And we had uh, record, uh, the music director, production director, Traffic and Continuity, which wrote basically the the, the cards that we read, just like the cards that you have today. Uh, In some cases, promotion directors. And there was a radio board, like you have now, exactly the same kind of makeup from the various constituencies that we served. Um, And then, so...
2: The, with the dorm stations, one of the things I was kind of interested in, I, you might have touched on this a little bit, but was there any like specialization of sound between the different dorms? Like, could you tell if you're listening to W E A K compared to one of the other ones? Right. Oh yeah,
14: they, each each dorm had the personality of its general manager. Mm. So uh, at W E A K, we were very much what we called progressive rock, which now which now you would think of as classic rock. Uh, we were like we loved to break new music. Um, We interviewed bands when they came through and that kind of stuff. WMCD was the one that Steve Schramm ran, and he's the guy that now runs Michigan Radio in Ann Arbor. Back then, he and I were screaming top 40 disc jockeys. We were both working at uh, 94.9 FM, playing the hits, and he wanted to play top 40 at WMCD. So he went out and had a jingle package recorded. He taught his guys how to be top 40 jocks, and that station sounded just as good as anything that was on the air in the market. Wow,
2: that's impressive. And that's just, I mean, to me, that's so funny because, I mean, we do have specialty shows, um, you know, where we'll feature different music, but Impact definitely has this uh, very distinct indie music sound to it. So the fact that there was just very different stations to each dorm. And I can imagine a student who, like, comes to Michigan State is
14: really into progressive rock and then gets the top 40 station. <laughs> that would be kind of funny. Well, and that was the interesting thing, though, because, I mean, even even in the top 40 formats, I mean, there were times of the day When you might hear WBRS or you might hear WKME, Mm. depending upon um, how things were scheduled across the network. I mean, like today, they had the same problem that you guys have, and that is getting people to show up for shifts. (laughs) So as they worked out their week, the best best thing that could happen for you if you were a DJ in Brody or Wonders or Shaw was to have all campus. Mm. If they put you up on all campus... And you were talking to everybody across campus. That was awesome. <laughs> and it was really a neat way to build fan base. Mm-hmm. There, there were guys uh, that that lived in homes in Hubbard Hall that loved WBRS because of the kind of stuff that they did. Um, and um, at, at, at the end of the day, if you listened to, with any regularity uh, to student radio back then in those days, you got a good kind of broad taste of all the different formats.
2: Mm-hmm. And this is probably gonna be the toughest question I'm gonna ask, but during your time at college radio, what do you think is the most memorable song or the favorite song that you played?
14: Oh my gosh. Well It's a tough one. <laughs> during during campus radio, um that was I was uh the top 40 guy back then. So my favorite song was Midnight Confessions by the Grassroots. Mm. Um I loved Chicago. We played a lot of Chicago because they were just just getting getting going. So probably Probably Make Me Smile by Chicago. Favorite album of all time still, Abbey Road. Nothing like it. You can listen to it from beginning to end. It's one one big symphony. And the record we played most often was a, a horrifically obscene song by Nilsson called You're Breaking My Heart. Because the one thing that was different then than now was that we were not FCC licensed stations oh. and anything went. So um, uh, encouraging our student G- DJs to keep it clean was always a big challenge because <laughs> the students knew it. So they would always call and say, hey, will you play You're Breaking your, break My Heart by Nielsen? We knew exactly why they wanted to hear that because it had one of the the most important of the seven words you can't see on radio and television. Oh, no. it was like it's like watching The Big Lebowski over and over again.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us. We've been talking with Scott Westerman, who is the executive director of the MSU Alumni Association, and he helps... Helps us out a lot here at The Impact, so thank you for all that you do for us. My
14: pleasure.
4: Another interview from Abby Newton is next. The interview takes a more global perspective as she covers the violence in Syria.
5: First on exposure, Anas Atal is a senior international relations student at Michigan State University who was born in Syria. As America is deciding what to do amidst the violence in the country, we hear Anas' perspective. We started with the events that happened in the beginning of the summer, the ousting of President Morsi
16: while morsi was uh, democratically elected he he wasn't uh, he did not preserve the democracy in his country for example uh, the constitution was w- which excluded uh, some of the uh, country's population uh, and minorities um, were passed by not uh, by majority like 51 60 but uh, things like this need supermajority a, a such thing like constitution. It should, they shouldn't be, uh, you know, exclusive of some uh, minorities. Mm-hmm. And uh, other decisions I'm not uh, totally aware of. I have spoken to some of my uh, Egyptian friends. They explained it uh, to me, and that, you know, that he wasn't going on the path they were envisioning, uh, the democratic path. So what the military did to preserve democracy out uh, said that uh, mercy, and they gave him warning. They told him, you know, let's do referendum, let's do this and that. And a fun fact, more people protested against Morsi than against Mubarak, the former president. Mm-hmm. So if you, you want to look at it in, in terms of democracy, you know, what exactly do you look at? There are so many things that define democracy. Elections is not everything. Election is not democracy. So the people, you know, which, you know, are the ones who should be represented weren't, or the majority of them weren't represented, and that's why they went uh, on the streets on large numbers.
5: And when we were talking before, you called this a great movement, almost a revolution. Why do you say that?
16: Because a um, lot of people took the streets, and you know their demands. Uh, they had legitimate demands. They know what they want. The people want a country for everyone, in Egypt to be represented. Everyone to have a chance, not a small segment of people. And that's why I go. That's what we want in the Middle East. We want, you know, everyone in the Middle East despite of their religious background, despite of their ethnic, because you have lots of diversity in the Middle East. We don't want one, even if it's the majority, which I am one of them, to be the only one who's represented in the Middle East. The Middle East without Christians, without uh, Druze, without Kurds, without Jews, is not the Middle East. You know? mm-hmm. So we want to preserve our identity and it is important to have those, all those uh, ethnics and religious groups.
5: And with that has come a lot of violence. And what is it like for you and being in America and watching this violence in your country and in the Middle East?
16: It is difficult. However, you know, this is understandable. For example, if I could bring the American Revolution, you know, uh, after they uh, got their independence from the colonies, Few years later, you had the Civil War. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a full democracy. Uh, Until now, we're still figuring out democracy in the U.S. We we, can, one could argue, that we are not still perfect democracy. Which may there might be not not such thing. So you know, you had the Civil War. Some people died, and then you know, people started figuring it out. The middle in the Middle East, we have the same thing. The Middle East, although we are like ancient civilization, however, we are new countries. The Middle East was divided in 1916 after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and was colonized. So Middle Eastern didn't have the chance to, uh, you know, figure their their things, you know, their democracy out or the way they want to be uh, ruled. And in the Middle East, since it was divided, uh, Middle Eastern did not, you know, it's hard to identify, identify yourself. You know, say, oh, I'm Syrian. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, so people uh, did not fight for their... Uh, borders as in Europe or the U.S. You know, they, you, know you didn't set the... the
5: Parameters
0: and yeah, borders. so <laughs> they,
16: it was just given to you. And people who may have not uh, supposed to live by themselves, lived by, you know, uh, you know th- among each other did. And, uh, you know, it wasn't well done. And that's why now you have this. And this, because of the colonies, you had the uh, dictators afterwards, so to prevent uh, uh, imperialism into coming to the Middle East. And then with the dictatorship, you have, uh, you know, brutal regimes, you have this and that. And then people started to say, you know, we need a change. Mm-hmm. It's it's costly, you know.
5: And you still have family who live in the country. So what are their perceptions of what is happening?
16: Uh, well, it's very difficult to uh, have uh, relatives live in, in, you know, in Syria now because uh, I'm always, you know, I have reminded of uh, their uh, difficulties and their, you know, Lack of resour the lack of resources they have and it's very hard you know like having to live here in the U S you know trying to study trying to work trying to live your normal life as a person you know joke enjoy your life while you know your family is still in danger it's a lot more difficult difficult than than if I were to be there if I were to be there at least you know I would know I'm next to them you know I could wake up one day and find out that you know one of the houses was bombed or as I showed you or uh, someone forgot that got killed or something mm-hmm. so it's hard and then now anyone in Syria became becomes my family like it doesn't have to be they don't have to be directly related to me you know it's a fellow syrian so you know i sympathize with them
5: because you have that bond in what you're going through together almost yeah. although Whether, you're across yeah, the sea <laughs> despite
16: of their uh, political uh, you know opinions as long as you know one does not advocate uh, violence you know he's my brother mm-hmm. Oh she is my sister. What
5: are your thoughts on how America should intervene in what is happening in Syria?
16: well it's it's difficult to give my own thought mm-hmm. because I really I'm not sure yet. however, uh, both uh, you know arguments have very strong um, bases. On one hand, if let's say the United States uh, first of all, before I go into that, uh, I really admire the decision of the president to take the to consult uh, the Congress. I think it's very important to uh, consult the people. It's very important uh, to have our voices heard. We fight for principles in Syria. We don't fight uh, for, for you know uh, only uh, you know our own interest. Our principle is democracy, and therefore you know we would like countries who interfere in Syria to also you know adhere to these uh, principles. And if the Congress does not pass it, I don't think the United uh, States should strike. However. Now, into the topic, if the United States strikes, we want to look at whether the United States is is promoting the uh, interest of uh, the Syrian people or its own interest. Is Obama trying to save face? What will be the consequences of the bombing? Will it actually make a change? Will it actually help the Syrian uh, case? Are there strong evidence uh, that the Assad regime used chemical weapons? The use of chemical weapons is uh, uh, undoubtable, I think. But uh, who used it? I believe, you know, despite who I believe used it, I would like to see more evidence, clear evidence of who used it. And uh, so if that striking helps the interest of the Syrian people, then, you know, a yes would be, you know, I would lean towards yes. However... If we don't strike, will the chemical weapons be used again? What are the consequences? So I don't think such a heinous uh, attack uh, should be uh, un- punish- punished, unpunished. Mm-hmm. So there has to be some action taken. So both, the, if you don't strike, you know there might uh, be uh, use of chemical weapons in the future. The you know the, it might you know escalate even more. If you do use it, you know what are the consequences? Will it turn into regional war? will it turn into world war three I don't know I mean hopefully not, but I don't hope any war would you know like you know the war does not expand but uh, we need to look closely. I'm sure the administration has uh, more knowledge in this i I'm sure you know I trust that they would but I really hope that they would be in the favor of the interest of the Syrian people but uh, we also I want to ask that if there's an alternative. Um, Of course, uh, we have no uh, alternative to political solution in which all parties come to uh, negotiation tables. The only dispute is whether uh, we have preconditional uh, negotiations in which Assad has to be out or uh, no uh, preconditional negotiations in which Assad uh, is a part of the new transitional government and Syrian people vote. For what they want
5: and do you feel like your opinion is shared by many of the people in syria or is hmm. it mixed what are your thoughts on that
16: how do i say my friends mm-hmm. family and like the people i know i would say 99 percent of them want a strike okay. they want a way out so every every almost except probably f- very few people i know Everyone else want a strike, want to get out of this. They think of the strike as something that weakens Al Assad. They want Al Assad out, to help, like anyway, and they think only a superpower is able to do that, mm-hmm. because there isn't, you know, uh, real support for the Free Syrian Army, which is also cap- capable of doing that. But if that doesn't uh, exist, then you only have a superpower that's on, yeah, that could do that.
5: And you said earlier that you were going to become a citizen of America in December, very soon. So do Hopefully. you feel like as a citizen of America, you feel like our country, so it would become your country too, has a responsibility to help Syria and countries who are in need in that democratic fight?
16: Yeah, I think so. Not not only because I'm gonna become a citizen, also because as uh, international relations measures, you know, we we've been figuring out the international system for a long time, and now you know, as you have superpowers, uh, you know, we like you have two hegemonies, so it's like balance of power. So their responsibility is to ensure peace in the in the world, because um, you know they get their resources from the world. So it's uh, the world we share. You know, the the boundaries. Uh, where you know the the boundaries that is supposed to divide us into countries and people, you know only you know limit us as a human. We came to this earth as, as a human. We lived to you know like at the very beginning they spoke the same language. They were we're a human. You know I, you know you have skin. I have skin. You have eyes. I don't see you know that those all oh, those are different people. We know we shouldn't interfere in their business. I personally you know not only as an American as a Syrian as whomever I am I am a human uh when we go to sleep we all you know you know are human we don't speak <laughs> but uh i think it is a uh, superpower's uh, responsibility to uh, end the conflict the united states is a superpower and uh, it has responsibilities uh so yeah mm-hmm. i do think uh,
5: do you still feel a sense of hope in your country that it will get better that there is an exciting future ahead
16: definitely mm-hmm. I mentioned the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. I could also mention the French Revolution. I could mention so many revolutions. You know, one may argue that, oh, you know, Syrian revolution is different, but it's the same phases. You know, democracy is not an easy goal. It's not an easy thing to achieve. You have to change, you know, lots of things. After we change the political system, we have to go through social, you know, movement. You have to change the you know mentality of the. It's difficult. It's a very tough route to take. Uh, lots of obstacles. But uh, whether I have a hope? Of course, I have a hope. I think you know, and you know, people uh, took the streets for a reason. You know, they want everyone in the country to be represented. You know, Muslims were next to Christians, were next to you know everyone, and then they the Muslim hold uh, held the uh, the Bible. You know, they held the cross, you know, going on the streets. We say, you know, we want everyone in this country. And that's, you know, how it is in the U.S., you know. You know, you live next to your neighbor, you know, probably from different country, probably from different religion. And that's what we want. So the United States had difficulties to get to this point. It wasn't uh, a linear, uh, you know. How do you say? Line. Which, you know, and yeah,
5: simple, no challenge. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> like street. this easy.
16: It was difficult. The French had it uh, difficult also. They went through phases of democratization and de-democratization so many times, you know. Um, so, yeah, like Spain, all these, Italy, yeah. many countries.
5: Mm-hmm.
16: Yeah. So I have hope, yes.
5: Anas, thank you very much.
16: Thank you very much.
4: To wrap up the show, we go to Abby Newton one last time as she sits down with Desmond Jones.
5: Desmond Jones is a Lansing bass band that has currently been on tour around Michigan. Although no one in the band is actually named Desmond Jones, I caught up with the group last week.
1: I'm John Novak and I play the drums. I'm Isaac Berkowitz and I play the guitar. I'm Chris Boda and I also play the guitar. I'm George Falk, I usually play the
8: saxophone, but I'm playing violin today. Uh, I'm John Loria, and I play the bass.
5: Well, welcome to Exposure. Thank Thanks for you for having us. Yeah. This is Desmond Jones. Well,
8: we got the name actually from uh, a Beatles song, okay. from Ob-La-Di, oh, da So Molly, or Desmond and Molly Jones. So.
5: Are it, you Beatles fans?
8: Yes, I am. Well, we are. I don't think. El I mean, smart. we like it's the cool. Beatles. Yeah,
17: yeah. <laughs> everyone likes the Beatles.
5: <laughs> so Desmond Jones was an okay name. You solidified yourselves on yeah. that.
17: we had some other options, but. They were a little weird, so. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Do you want to share some of those options?
1: Jelly. <laughs> toad
5: frog, Which one was toad
8: frog was a big one. The uh, one.
18: Frosty nips, I <laughs> Ooh.
5: <laughs> that would that could be open to interpretation, uh, I
18: think. <laughs> Moon rover. Yeah. Moon rover was a big one. That, that was really. actually a really good one. I mm-hmm. liked that one a lot.
5: It's a good one. I feel like if you had that, it'd be more like the space music, this like retro feel. But what is your style of music? How would you describe it?
17: <laughs> um, I don't know. It says "Spacey Folk Jam" on the um, Facebook page, so <laughs> maybe. But it's like pretty much rock and roll with, with a little funky twist to it, I guess.
5: Would you agree? Yeah. More
18: yes. Yeah, yeah, we play know. a
1: lot of funk, blues, jam stuff. Are there and certain artists jazz.
5: that have inspired you to play this, or that you kind of look after to not imitate, but you know, have similarities? Yeah,
8: we're really influenced by people like. Frank Zappa, Mm -hmm. um, like a lot of jazz people, like Mingus and Coltrane, and then, you know, obviously Fish and the Dead, stuff like that. So it all kind of just comes together in this weird... Spacey
5: folk. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Perfect. So when did you start becoming a band?
8: John and I uh, started playing in sixth sixth grade or seventh grade?
1: Sixth grade.
8: Yeah, so we've been in bands all through middle school and high school, and then we got here, and we didn't really play much beginning of the year. And so at the end, I was like, "All ah, right, well, I kind of want to get something back together." So, I grabbed John, and then we made flyers, and I put them up around the school. And uh, Chris was actually the only one that replied to it, so that I ended up working out.
17: <laughs> yeah, so we played one show in 2012 in the spring. It was like April yeah. during the spring semester, and then we played a couple times over the summer, just knowing that we were going to do something next year, but not knowing what. Mm-hmm. And then we put out a, face, or a Craigslist ad, and,
11: and that's that's
18: uh, how they got me. So yeah. we got it. frequent Craigslisters? <laughs> we're all East still Lansing. alive. Oh my! <laughs> like, I, I just moved to East Lansing, and I was um, looking for jobs wherever I could. Look for them, and uh, Craigslist was obviously one of those places. So, in uh, an, an effort to convince myself that I was still being productive, but not being productive, I ended up browsing a bunch of like the musical and. Uh, Created like what? What is it like? Gigs. Uh, gigs? gigs yeah, yeah, I think you guys
1: posted in gigs.
5: I didn't know that was a there's a category so of gigs. Yeah, mm, most of Craigslist? it's like
1: looking for adult film actresses. I can imagine. And right below is an ad for a saxophone. Spacey folk music. <laughs>
10: yeah,
18: it was for saxophone and keys. Okay. Um, and I showed up one day and I.
5: Just, Were you a little nervous?
18: I, I mean, I, I wasn't
8: too
5: I mean, afraid. We were pretty being, intimidated. Like, he was
18: bad. walking
8: into, like, <laughs> some death
18: yeah, Some alley. <laughs> some saxophone <laughs> experience. To. To, as Moral hall. <laughs> is a must. But,
1: no, um, but Isaac yeah. and I were impressed right away with both Chris and George. And George came in yeah. to play the saxophone, and Isaac and I, all through high school, have always wanted to have a horn yeah. section.
18: We actually, uh, we actually got a, a double sax response on that day because... Uh, uh, one of our, another person showed up for sax, and he played with us for quite a while, but uh, he plays with us no longer. <laughs>
8: <laughs> but, uh, it was peaceful. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we,
11: if he's listening, James,
1: we, we, we miss, miss you. Yeah, James, come <laughs> back. Come back. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah, Isaac and I almost felt like we were auditioning for George at the time, because we were so blown away by his talent, and... That was, seriously, that was one of the, like, one of the biggest (laughs) pickups we've ever had. Yeah, that was sweet. That's very
8: nice. It took us a really long time to find a bass player, too. We actually went through four bass players. Well, three before John. Yeah, three bass players. Actually, two people from Wayne Selinski were our bass players. (laughs) 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 We had half of Wayne Selinski in our band at one point. And then, um... And then uh, I was just walking through the dorms, like my dorm one day, and I heard someone playing bass, so I just walked into his room, and it was Johnny. So I just made him come practice with us.
5: (laughs) Oh, my goodness.
8: No, no. Yeah, I wasn't prepared for that.
5: <laughs> Are you glad you were playing bass that one day, that peaceful uh, day in your dormitory?
8: Um, um yeah. It was, it was quite a surprise when he walked in, but...
18: <laughs> Isaac never knocks.
8: <laughs> yeah, he didn't knock. I I just, until he, like, practically tapped me on the shoulder, I had no idea he was in there.
18: You were in your zone, weren't
5: you? Yeah, <laughs> so to speak. Now, what's been your favorite place to play so far?
18: I'm always a big fan of the basement shows. Yeah, I grew the basement Like, I don't know, we've played at, uh... Henrik, or whatever? Hedric. Hedric. That's Hedrick. <laughs> That's Hedric. <Yeah. laughs> um, uh we've, We did uh, Orion and Vesta, and those were all just great shows. Oh, yeah.
5: Yeah. Fun. And do you guys create your own music lyrically, or do you um, just play songs that have already been created? What's your style in that sense?
17: It's mostly originals. Yeah. Okay. We'll do covers like normal bands mm-hmm. will. Like We'll throw in a couple per set, but it's mostly original stuff. We like
1: to throw some crowd favorites in like th- at parties and yeah, stuff just so to people keep people wild. interested. Mm-hmm. So
5: Who does most of the writing?
1: This guy. Yeah. Isaac. I do. Yeah. So you
5: don't knock what you do right. So that's yeah, good. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, now what do you guys hope for the future of this band? What's next besides the tour of Michigan?
17: Tour of the world. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're probably just going to keep playing and take it seriously and just see what happens. Yeah, just I don't to... think we really have a lot of expectations. It's just fun. That's good. Yeah, just try to build up as much of a crowd as we can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It'd be nice to, you know, be able to play in front of a lot of people, but right now it's fun just to play in front of friends and Mm -hmm. small crowds.
5: Is there anything on the band's bucket list? Maybe places to play or people to play for? I
17: don't think we ever thought about that. We should...
8: Probably do that one yes. day. Yes. Like a realistic one, or yeah. Whatever you feel, it
1: can
5: be both. Bucket
1: list, dream list.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Bucket list is you know can be whatever your heart desires. <laughs> we
17: talked about wanting to play at Red Rocks, which would be yeah, amazing. I mm-hmm. always argue Madison Square Garden though. Dream. Yeah, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know that's
1: gonna don't but set your limitations. Yeah, it's a dream. That's
17: a dream. Red Rocks is big enough.
1: Okay.
18: Yeah, Have Chris's
1: basement back if you could. Yeah. Also
4: long shot. Thanks for joining me tonight. You've been listening to the Best of Exposure 2014. You can find this episode as well as all other episodes at our website, www.impact89fm.org. I've been your host, Quinn Hoffman, and this has been Exposure on the Impact 89FM.